Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Book Burners, Episode 30. Not being entirely willing to trust Aaron's assessment of the situation on the ground, the team took the time to confirm that security around the Vatican had been locked down to Pope-in-peril levels not seen since the assassination attempt against John Paul II. Manchu looked neither happy nor surprised. All right, he said. Aaron, how can you sneak us in? Wait here, Aaron said. With that, he left the alley where they had been hiding, walked straight up to one of the Vatican guards, and tapped him on the shoulder. Shit, Sal breathed. He's gonna sell us out. In a show of admirable restraint, Liam did not say, I told you so. Menchu held up a hand to keep the others in place. If he betrays us, regroup in Alexandria. Don't try to return to the villa. Sal felt the hands itch at the back of her brain grow stronger at the thought. If this went south, she wouldn't have time to get to Egypt. She wondered what would happen to the hand if she simply blew her brains out. Maybe it would pop back to the demon world. Or maybe she'd wind up a possessed, headless corpse. That seemed more in keeping with her recent luck. The guard Aaron had approached nodded, left his post, and walked straight for them. Arturo? Asante asked. Sal was ready to grab the archivist by the collar and force her to run, hoping that Liam would do the same for Manchu, when she noticed Aaron was still standing where he had tapped the guard, blinking as though dazzled by a bright light, or confused. After a few seconds, he pulled himself together and walked purposefully toward a nearby metro station. Sal looked at the approaching guard again. Now that he was closer, she could see his face more clearly. There was something about his eyes. They were familiar. It's Aaron, she said. Liam blinked. What? Sal remembered how the hand had prepared to leave her body for another one. There hadn't been an aura when Aaron had touched the guard, but maybe it looked different when her body wasn't the host in question. He jumped bodies, took over the guard. That's how he's gonna sneak us into the archives. We're just gonna walk in the front doors. Liam looked incredulous. Like Chewbacca? The guard arrived, lips now twisted in an all-too-familiar smirk. Ready to go, he asked. The body was different, the voice unchanged. 
A little warning could have saved us a lot of stress, Munchu said. Aaron shrugged. Sal couldn't help but notice he seemed to be breathing heavily after the short walk. You left me tied to a chair for hours, Aaron said. I think I'm entitled to a joke or two. He gestured toward the doors that would eventually lead to the archive's hidden entrance and offered a mocking bow. If you would come this way. Liam wasn't sure which of his poor life choices had led him to walking into the Vatican under the supposed supervision of a demon-possessed guard or angel-possessed to credit Sal's optimism for a tick. But he felt certain God's plan had gone seriously off course somewhere along the way. The most obvious choice for somewhere would be right around the time he was possessed by a demon himself and lost two years of his life. Liam was a God-fearing man, but if that particular twist of his fucked-up existence had been intended as part of God's larger tapestry, he had grave reservations about the nature of the final design. At the moment, however, his choices were simple and limited. He could either trust the demon or run like a coward and leave his teammates in the shit. Put that way, it was hardly a choice at all. That didn't stop Liam from sweating bullets as Aaron made small talk with one of the new heavily armed guards. He waited for the man at the door to notice his colleague's voice had changed or that he had four people following behind him. But the conversation concluded without incident and they walked quickly past. No one gave the group a second look. As he passed the guard on the door, Liam risked a glance at his face. The man's expression was impassive, but his eyes were covered by a filmy gray mist. Liam swallowed and sent up a silent prayer that he was still working for the good guys. Grace slipped over the rooftops toward her quarters in St. Catharines. After years of near invulnerability, she rarely worried about fights anymore. But now, her pulse thrummed, and she had a distinct impression she was about to walk the line between near invulnerability and the actual sort. Grace found she had to consciously slow her breathing. Her muscles were tense, and she felt a sharp pain in her palms. The last seven decades hadn't left her a stranger to fear. She felt it often, the dread when the others were at risk, the sharp pang as she put out her candle and had to trust that Manchu would be back as he had promised, to light it for her again. But she rarely feared for herself. Now, with the others gone, she felt the weight of her enemy's malevolence pointed at her. And this enemy knew how to hit her where it hurt. Good thing she knew how to hit back. Grace was alone on a rooftop, heading into an ambush where she would almost certainly be outnumbered and outgunned. For the first time in nearly a century, she was walking into a fair fight, and she couldn't help relishing the prospect. Aaron paused after he closed the door to the archives, as if listening for pursuit. But Asante caught the way that he had let the wood take his weight, the way he closed his eyes for a moment and fought to regain his breath. He was trying to hide it, but the man was exhausted. How much does shifting from one body to another cost him? Then he opened his eyes again and caught her watching. Hiding four people in plain sight must be a strain, she offered. Aaron's new lips thinned, but he didn't try to deny it. A bit. Then they were descending into the archives and Asante didn't have attention for anything else. She paused on the stairs while she was still high enough to see over most of the shelves. She had still been reassembling the collections after the techno-cultists' whirlwind hacking when the hand broke out and started eating invading demons. The damage from the latter had eradicated all signs of the former, but as far as silver linings went, that was definitely a thin one. Still, there were signs that others had been here since Team 3 left. For instance, she was sure the hand hadn't ransacked her desk and filing cabinets. That was Desmet and DeVos, no doubt. 
And somehow that violation of trust by her erstwhile colleagues felt even worse than the demons. Manchu's hand settled on her shoulder, a comforting weight. First, find the book of the hand, he said. Asante nodded. One step at a time. Stop a demon from breaking out of Sal's head and ending the world. Then worry about the damage done to her catalog system. Liam pulled off to see if any of his computers had survived the hand and subsequent ransacking. Asante pulled out her keys and led Manchu back to the third point of the star, the most secure of the archive's vaults where they'd stored the Book of the Hand. Manchu continued giving instructions as they crossed the charred floor to the vault. Sal, watch Aaron in the door. Liam, when you're done, help her. Uh, Asante. But his words were lost in the thunderous pounding of blood in Asante's ears, overwhelming all thought. The vault door stood open. And things have been going so well. The people watching the convent from the cafe across the street were trying to look nonchalant, but their lack of conversation made them easy to identify, and their fixation on the door made them even easier to evade. A tree growing over the courtyard of the neighboring building provided Grace with both a route to her own roof and a vantage point to check for surveillance above street level. There wasn't any, which meant that either their enemies were idiots, or this was definitely a trap. And while setting a trap for her was not the smartest idea, Grace was certain that given Desmet and Devos's treatment of Sal, who was merely possessed, they weren't likely to let her waltz in and reassume control of her own life if they thought they could prevent it. Better to be prepared. If she was wrong, the job would be easy and she could be pleasantly surprised. If not, being ready might make the difference between ending up comatose in a box at the end of the mission or not. Win-win. It was more fun to imagine she was walking into a trap anyway. Grace cautiously let herself down to the roof's peaked ridgeline from the tree. No alarms? A quick look showed no activity from the watchers at the cafe. She picked her way over to where the chimney blocked most views of the gutter and swung down. Her toe just found purchase on the window ledge of the nun's communal bathroom. At this hour, the sisters would all be at morning prayers, and unless someone was ill or playing hooky, she should have the place to herself. Grace's luck held. All of the good nuns were where they were supposed to be, and once she had squeezed herself onto the ledge above the sinks, she slipped to the floor unobserved. She didn't even knock over anyone's toothbrush, which she imagined the sisters would appreciate if they knew. Once she found her feet, Grace slowly cracked the door to the hallway. Her rooms were at the far end of the corridor, close to the stairs and the linen closet. Outside her door sat a woman in a habit. It would have to be a woman. The only man allowed into the residential areas would be a priest, and someone would ask questions if a member of the clergy just sat around all day. Grace was also certain that woman in a habit was a more accurate description of the person she was looking at than none. Sisters possessed many skills. Hand-to-hand -hand fighting wasn't generally one of them. And this particular individual had swollen knuckles and a nose that knew how it felt to break. Good. This ought to be interesting. Liam wasn't surprised that the book of the hand was missing. Would have been too easy to just leave it for us to find. On the other hand, storing such a dangerous artifact anywhere other than the archives vault smacked of the kind of moronic decision-making that generally required either a dedicated committee or a truly clueless superior, possibly both. He let Asante and Manchu worry about the book. He plugged into the network, let his programs loose on Team 2's intranet, always felt a nice bit of guilty pleasure breaking out the black hat, and turned to his main objective. He hadn't sold Sal out, but they'd learned somehow. 
Liam didn't think any of the others would have let the information slip even by accident. Which left one possibility. They had all told Balloon and Stretch about Sal's little problem because Balloon and Stretch were listening to their private conversations. We don't have a leak problem. We have a bug problem. In the convent shower room, there was a small wooden hatch that allowed access to the pipes, drains, and emergency shutoff valves. These centuries-old buildings didn't have central heat or air conditioning, so convenient and illogically load-bearing air ducts connecting every room of the convent would have been too much to hope for. But a person who didn't mind a tight squeeze could force their way from the drain access up to a storage space below the roof ridge that extended down the entire wing, a storage area wider than the corridor below it. Grace counted steps to the room at the end of the hall. Then she pressed down as close to the eaves as she could, and with a swift kick, broke a hole through the ceiling of her bedroom. Now was not the time for subtlety. If Grace was lucky, the woman in the hallway would pause for a moment to summon help before going inside to investigate the cause of the noise in what was supposed to be an empty room. If she wasn't lucky, there would be another guard inside. In either case, her best chance was to grab her candle quickly and take any resistance by surprise. First piece of luck, no one in the bedroom. Second, her candle was still burning on her bedside table where she had left it, how long ago? Grace forced herself not to notice how far it had burned since they'd gone on the run. She reached for a glass chimney to protect the flame. The door from her sitting room burst in, revealing three men in ill-fitting clerical collars. Grace grabbed the book sitting beside her bed and threw it into the face of the first man through the door, which granted her an extra moment to slam the hurricane chimney over her candle, pick it up, and launch herself at him. The man blocked the door, his buddies couldn't get through, and the three-to-one matchup turned head-to-head. Even one-handed, it was hardly a fair fight. Grace knocked the first man cold and sent him tumbling into the second, just as the sister from the hallway burst in on the scene. The third man had a knife and a gun. He didn't have time to aim before Grace kicked it from his grip. The second man was still trying to throw off the unconscious first, which Grace judged would keep him busy long enough for her to knock out the one with the knife. If she was fast, she could then deal with the woman, followed by the last man, and be back on the roof with her candle and on her way before the couple at the cafe could cross the street or summon reinforcements. If they had reinforcements. Balloon and Stretch were supposed to be a fraction within team two, not the whole damn team. How many goons could they field? The man with the knife fell to a quick kick to the temple, underestimating how far she could reach while holding a lit candle in one hand. Grace used her momentum to whip around and face the woman from the hall, who was carrying a fire extinguisher. Try me, she told Grace. Let's see who goes down first. We can talk about this, Grace began, and then, while the woman hesitated, flung her candle and its glass lamp straight up into the air. The ceiling was just high enough that she'd have a few seconds to disarm the false nun and still had time to catch the candle on the way down. The woman gaped fish-like as Grace hurled herself at her. With both hands free, it was a simple matter for Grace to yank the false nun's robes over her face, tangling her in her unaccustomed habit. Grace turned back, reaching out for the candle, which was now falling, just where she wanted it, right into her waiting hand. Not her waiting hand. The last man had freed himself faster than Grace had anticipated. He plucked the candle from the air, jerking it from her reach, even as her fingers brushed against the protective glass of the chimney. A swing of his arm and the lamp shattered against the wall. Grace could still reach the candle. She hadn't lost yet. The man's eyes met hers as he pinched out the flame. 
Grace was gone before her body, or the candle, hit the floor. Liam's first guess was that Balloon and Stretch had compromised one of Team 3's computers. Not his, after getting sucker punched and possessed through his laptop. Liam was more than a little obsessive about security. But the older Vatican machines weren't such hard targets. An email link, a keylogger. Then again, out of the rest of his teammates, Sal was the only one who regularly used technology more advanced than a flip phone, and she didn't have her own machine in the office. If I were a bug in the archives, where would I be? In the center of the room, probably, near Asante's desk, where they gathered when they had anything important to discuss. Except that was out, because anything tech-based would be fried by its proximity to the orb. Liam had learned that the hard way, having lost more than one piece of scanning equipment trying to figure out how the damn glowy magic eight ball worked. Across the room, he heard Sal ask, how long before Grace assumes we've all been taken and starts on plan B, bloody vengeance? Menchu pulled out his pocket watch. About ten more minutes. Sal looked at Aaron, still leaning against the stair railing. Can you get us out? Sal asked him. Aaron nodded. We can't leave without the book of the hand. Manchu slipped the watch back into his pocket. It was an antique, encased in silver, which, as far as Liam could tell, was the only reason it was still working. Because, by rights, nothing that complex should still keep accurate time when surrounded by the amount of magical backwash the team was exposed to on a regular basis. And then Liam's eye fell on the antique pen case resting in its usual spot on Asante's desk. His own desk had been thoroughly tossed, Manchu's too. So had Asante's files and cabinets. So why was her pen case still there, completely undisturbed? Or perhaps returned? Because Team 2, for all their confidence, would want to hedge their bets in case Team 3 found a way to sneak back into the archives. And if we did, we might just say something worth hearing. A new voice sounded from the top of the stairs, and Liam knew he had come to this conclusion just a moment too late. Cardinal Verano looked down at them like God the Father. You won't be leaving at all. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. 
In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Four. Your eminence, Menchu said, though the term seemed out of place addressed to a man flanked by machine-gun-wielding toughs. I can explain. I'm not here for explanations, Arturo. The man in the red robes sounded sad more than angry. I warned Asante there was nothing I could do until you dealt with the problem of Ms. Brooks, and your response to that was to break into the Vatican. Looking for this, I expect. The cardinal gestured, and one of the guards opened a leather case to reveal the Book of the Hand. It was still wrapped in a protective shroud, and seeing it, Manchu muttered, Thank God. If I were in your position, Arturo, said the cardinal, I would pray for mercy and forgiveness, not in thanks. Your eminence, we need a book to free sal, an exorcism. But those are quite beyond your bellywick, Arturo. They're Team Two's responsibility, and you attack Team Two's operatives with magic, no less, to free her. Davos, or Desmet, I can never remember which is which. Anyway, he's been grievously injured. Surely you understand the predicament you've left me. Desmet and Davos are killing people. Manchu's voice shook with rage. They're torturers and thugs. And they are efficient, the cardinal said, which was when Manchu started to worry. Sal trusted her teammates, but she never felt altogether comfortable around the society higher-ups, so as soon as Verano entered with the machine guns, she jumped straight to, holy fuck, the cardinal's selling us out. But she hadn't gotten much further when she felt Aaron's hand at her elbow. Don't talk, he whispered. Just follow me, and whatever you do, be very, very quiet. And bail on the others? Fuck that noise. Sal set her heels as Aaron tried to guide her backward. His grip on her arm, although shaking, was surprisingly strong. I can get us all out of this, but you have to come with me now, he hissed. Sal risked a glance at the cardinal. He wasn't even glancing in Sal's direction. Neither were his guards. And sure, Aaron was quiet, but someone should have noticed him moving around, right? Magic, damn it. We have to help them, Sal said. We have to save your brother first. We'll come back, but only if we survive, which will only happen if you shut up and walk. Sal weighed her options. Go with a demon, or angel, who would help them so far, versus stay in the machine gun sights, then get herself thrown into a cell subject to the tender mercies of Balloon and Stretch. Somehow, she didn't think the maiming the hand inflicted on Balloon would put him in a kind mood. Aaron pulled at her arm again, and this time Sal followed. Aaron guided her backward at first, taking tiny steps into the ruined stacks. 
Once they were out of the cardinal's direct line of sight, they turned and, locking her hand in his, he towed her out of the archives through a back door, up a narrow hallway, all the way to Perry's room. Sal froze as they crossed the threshold, and Aaron released her hand. Even in the short time since her last visit, Perry had visibly deteriorated. Skin pale and slack, cheeks hollow. A forest of machines surrounded him. He was breathing on his own, but the sound had a broken, rasping quality. Did they do this? Sal asked. No need to elaborate on who they were. No, this is the hand's work. Sal poked at the buzzing at the back of her brain. Had it done something to Perry while she was possessed? When? He was fine. Not fine. Sal foundered for words. But he was stable. She reached for her brother's hand, felt his skin, dry and soft like paper. What changed? She asked, not caring if she got an answer from the demon inside or the one by her brother's bed. I don't know, Aaron said, but I have a theory. Possession is a swap of sorts, a soul dragged into the other world for a soul forced into this. But the hand's larger than Perry or you, and most of its being remains in the other world. It merely extended itself into this domain through Perry and through you. But when the hand broke free, its use of power taxed this vessel like power through a filament. Then why wasn't I hurt? My best guess is that the hand wanted you mobile. Perry, not so much. But you should have both been hurt when it began to use its power. Why you're fine and Perry's not, well, it's not important now. As Aaron continued to talk, Sal felt the itch of the hand in her mind, and her eyes slid unbidden up to Perry's left ear. Something was different about it, but what? And then it hit her. She could see Perry's ear, because the lock of hair that normally covered it had been cut off. A lock of hair folded into a scrap of paper and given to the oracle at Delphi, who had demanded a sacrifice. Interesting choice, the Pythia had said. Oh, God, what had she done? Aaron leaned forward, demanding Sal's attention again. This is what I need from you, why I brought all of you here. I can save him, but I need your permission. Why would you need my permission to save my brother? Menchu made me promise not to harm anyone living. He's alive, then? Perry's soul, hunched in a demon dimension in a cell of glass and briars. He's not gone. I haven't lost him. He is not entirely gone, but the man you knew as your brother will not fit in a body so used as this. The hand has scoured him clean. Aaron gestured to the bed to her brother. But if I take his body, I can give him life. You said harm. I'll have to make a little more room for myself, Aaron faltered, and rewire him from the inside somewhat, which might be construed as, it. he won't work quite like a human anymore, but he will leave this place. The buzzing at the back of Sal's skull throbbed and pulsed. Sal asked the only question that mattered. Why? Aaron did not speak until she met his eyes. Because I can. He is one life, and each life is everything. He pressed both hands against the edge of Perry's bed, and Sal realized he was using it to support his weight. 
I am careful. I do not vandalize the bodies I visit. The man you know as a tour guide will return to his life, none the worse for wear, and without knowledge or memory of his time with me. But if I stay in one body for too long, I cannot help doing irreparable harm, as the hand has done here. I shift back and forth as I must to save my hosts. But with each shift, I lose a piece of myself. Your brother has been hollowed. Hallowed, you might say. There is space for me in the empty spaces within him. Until the one who owns my service finally calls me home. Sal shook her head. I can't make that decision for him. Aaron lifted Perry's other hand, holding it carefully so as not to disturb the tubes and wires that gave him a semblance of life. There is no one else who can. Have you ever wondered, the cardinal continued, how this whole edifice functions? We have operatives on all continents. We protect the world from threats no one else admits exist. We all have to be on the same page. We need efficiency and loyalty. Desmet and Devos are not efficient. They're not loyal. Judged by what standard, Arturo? They have their messes, yes, but they clean them up. They've been honest with me about the situation, and I've repaid their honesty with trust. Killing the possessed or those they claim to be possessed, the cardinal shrugged. You have to admit it's clean. Compare that to your team, chasing all over the world after magic, trying to save everyone, generating headlines and expense reports and paperwork. It's a sickness. You try to save the unsavable, right down to Ms. Brooks, who is literally possessed by a demon. That's our mission, Menchu said, our calling. Your job is to protect the society and keep the monsters contained. Instead, you've gone around recruiting them. It's a nightmare. The other teams see what you get away with and grow bolder. The mission of the society is to keep order. You've made your entire division an anathema. You're honestly saying we should let people die. A small town in the southern United States disappears nice and neat. The authorities there deal with that sort of thing all the time. Certainly to be preferred over calling in a strike team and costing us a team leader. We searched high and low, but could not find a better replacement for Bouchard than Tavani Shah, who I'm sure you'd agree is hardly an ideal candidate. I don't know, Manchu said, voice tight and vicious. What you're implying? It's a question of uh, cultural fit. Anyway, if I were in your position, Arturo... If you were in my position, Your Excellency, how many hundreds more would be dead? His words were greeted by thunderous silence. Finally, the cardinal rasped, How dare you? You've disobeyed orders. You've stolen into the Vatican by who knows what black arts. You've broken faith, Arturo. And she raised his eyes to meet Cardinal Varanos. I have never broken faith with the church. But if the church wishes to break faith with me, I will protect myself and my people. The cardinal's face had darkened to a red so deep it was nearly purple. He closed his eyes and breathed deeply until he paled again. You're a sickness at our heart, Arturo. A cancer, building a team of cancers. But Arno's gesture took in Asante and Liam as well. The weak and the possessed squawking about the virtue. 
Once I've made an example of you, the other teams will fall in line. It won't even be difficult to turn them against you. Your people are barely even human. At this cue, a guard at the back shoved Grace forward to fall at Cardinal Verano's feet. She crumpled, careless and limp, like a puppet with cut strings. When she felt his heart stop, the cardinal noticed his flinch. Fortunately, DeVos and Desmet kept me informed of your illicit activities. You have given me trouble for years, but that ends now. Surrender and cooperate. Confess what you are told to confess and affirm what you are told to affirm. He held up Grace's unlit candle, and I will not have this thing destroyed. Machu swallowed. Would you let her live? The cardinal smiled, sensing he had found his point of leverage. She will be safe. Maybe someday she will even be found again, once all of this is safely behind us. Once everyone in this room is dead, Manchu translated. He hoped that someone else on the team had a plan, because other than stall for time by keeping the cardinal talking, he was fresh out of ideas. Manchu took a breath to do just that, and smelled smoke. Surely Verano wouldn't try to burn them out when he was inside the archives. But no, it wasn't bonfire smoke, just enough to stain the air, as though someone had put out a match. The cardinal's eyebrows knit. Is something burning? He asked the guard at his left. The guard shook his head. A wisp of smoke caught Manchu's eye. He traced it back along its curving path to its source. The wick of Grace's candle was smoldering. Manchu was certain it hadn't been before. And then, before his very eyes and without visible cause, it caught fire. For the first time since that bloody night in Guatemala, Manchu believed in miracles. After that, things happened very quickly. The cardinal noticed the flame and his eyes widened, but before he could react, Grace caught the candle in one hand and his wrist in the other. She yanked the cardinal's arm down, their skulls collided with a thunk, and Verano slumped to the floor, blood streaming from his nose. Liam jumped over Asante's desk into the fray, and Asante threw books at whoever came into range. But most of the fight was Grace, moving like a whirlwind of poetic destruction, kicking and choking until the cardinal and his entire complement of guards lay unconscious at her feet. She surveyed the room, burning candles still clutched in one hand, and turned to Manchu. Where's Sal? She asked. Sal? Sal was right there where she'd been standing this whole time. Except she wasn't. I don't. I'm here, said Sal behind him as she emerged from the fallen stacks. She was walking slowly and her arm was around her brother, who was clearly very weak, but just as clearly conscious. When did that happen? Sal helped Perry sit and he leaned forward against his knees, exhausted. Sorry, said Sal. He isn't moving very well. I think lighting Grace's candle from across the room really took it out of him. Manchu's heart sank in his chest. Not a miracle. Sal, he asked, what happened to Aaron? Sal gestured to Perry. Everyone, meet my brother, Perry, sort of. Manchu looked at the young man he'd first seen months ago in New York, playing host to a demon once again. He prayed that Sal had made a better deal than he had all those years ago. Perry managed with difficulty to pull his head off his knees. Charmed, he spoke with Aaron's voice. Asante blinked. Oh, Sal. Sal looked nearly as tired as Aaron. Please, can we talk about this later, when we aren't surrounded by people who want to kill us? 
Somewhere above them, muffled by the closed door, a klaxon sounded. The alarm was followed by heavy pounding of booted feet above their heads. Good plan, said Liam. Asante nodded to Perry's exhausted body. He can't get us out the way he got us in, he can barely walk. Aaron struggled to his feet, and Menchu watched as Sal held a steadying hand under his elbow. Was she responding to her brother's body or the thing within? He wished he could say for sure. Fortunately, I happen to know an alternate route. What is it? demanded Asante, bristling like a mother hen. Did you know, said Aaron, that the original Roman water system connects to most cave systems in central Italy? Five. It was a very long, very dark walk back. But as promised, all sewers, then catacombs, then caves led away from Rome. And following Perry's, or Sal reminded herself, Aaron's directions, they reached the hidden cavern they had snuck out from the night before. Between the length of the journey and Menchu and Asante's confusion, she decided to believe Aaron's reassurances that no one else knew of the route they had taken. She didn't ask how he knew about it. The hand was pressing at the back of her mind, growing in strength and insistence, and she decided that she had other things to worry about. Once they were back, Liam, who in spite of his antipathy for demon artifacts, had insisted on carrying the shroud-wrapped book of the hand the entire trip, lifted one corner of the wrappings and pulled out Asante's silver pen case, which had been tucked inside. What on earth? asked Asante. Liam gestured for silence and pulling out a multi-tool, carefully cracked open the casing to reveal a tiny chip and transmitter. He pulled the chip off the battery and let out a slow breath. Taking in the team's confusion, he explained, this is how Balloon and Stretch found out about Sal. They bugged the archives and we all told them everything they wanted to know. And you brought it back here, said Grace. They might be able to trace us with it, we should smash. Liam pulled the bug hastily out of reach. It's too small to transmit over any kind of range, he said, only a little defensive. Let alone through this much rock. Yes, said Menchu, but why not leave it where it was? Liam's grin turned positively wolfish. Give me 20 minutes and I'll show you. A short time later, Liam had hooked the bug's central chip up to his computer, and they were all listening to a recording of the Cardinal's unhinged rant about their team, crypto-racism, threats against grace, and all culminating in his plan to force them into coerced confession. Manchu shuddered. None of that had been easy to hear the first time. Can you put that on the internet? Sal asked. Sure, said Liam. Manchu shook his head. No, you can't. But, said Sal. Manchu cut her off. According to the rest of the world, magic doesn't exist. Our team, the society, doesn't exist. Keeping that secret is the most important part of our job. I will not forsake my duty. Asante put a hand on his shoulder. Then we don't tell the world. We just find the people who can help us stop Cardinal Barano and his co-conspirators and tell them. And who would that be? Asked Grace. Liam had stopped the playback from the bug when their discussion started, but without warning, the speakers on his laptop crackled back to life. A woman's voice spoke, highly distorted, but unmistakably that of Tavani Shah, the new commander of Team One. Team Three, you are in rebellion against the society and the church. We have you surrounded. Surrender yourselves now and receive what mercy you may. Not an appealing offer, Sal muttered. If you do not respond within 20 minutes, we will be forced to act. We do not wish to harm you, but we will if you do not surrender. Liam was typing furiously and with a quick series of keystrokes broke into the feed. 
Why don't you surrender, traitor? He shouted back into the computer's mic pickup. There was a short pause. Oh, good. You can hear us. Grace let out a small groan. Surrender yourselves, the voice from the computer said calmly. If you don't, my entire team is standing by, and I'd hate to make them go home without using any of the lovely toys they've brought. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.